this is Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. And we are about to uh, be joined by filmmaker Brand- uh, David Brandon Wilson to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, are you there, Brett, my co-host? Perhaps not. In which case, I will go over David Brandon Wilson's biography. Um, he is a filmmaker and teacher, uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, attending UCLA, where he took a BA in African American Studies and an MFA from the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. Wilson has made several short films and written numerous screenplays. In 2005, he made his feature debut, The Man Who Couldn't, uh, which uh, for under 10K and was on standard definition digital video, which was very ahead of its time. Um, he's debuting uh, in the debuting in the Pan-African Film Festival. And then last year, his second feature, Sepulveda, which premiered in New York City at Urban World Film Festival. Uh, it has gone on to win a Special Achievement Award at the Culver City Film Festival, Best Ensemble Acting Award at the Silicon Beach Film Festival. Um, and Sepulveda was improvised with non-professional actors, co-directed and co-edited by Wilson and his wife, Jenna English. I really want to see it. Um, and uh, he also maintains a blog, GeniusFaster.com, and writes about film, pop culture, politics, and tweets at great lengths about all the same. And that is how I know him. And I also know that he's a huge Marvel fan, which is why uh, we said to ourselves, the next time there's a big Marvel movie coming out, we're going to have him on. So thank you for joining us, and welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've heard, I've listened to the show in the past. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Fabulous. So, you know, I, I sort of want to start by just getting the overall big picture. Um, from the standpoint of like, a fan and viewer, did you enjoy the movie? Right. I mean, because that's basically, that's the, the bottom line. I did. Um, I think that I was, the, the film for me had a huge um, hurdle in that the first film was so completely unexpected and that's hard to sort of duplicate the, once you, you now know what to expect and you go with expectations. But um, I think initially I was a little less high on it as, as, as I am now. I think I'm growing to appreciate it more. I think my first response was that it had, didn't quite crack the code of Empire Strikes Back. That is to say, to have a sequel, a, a part two that is sort of a little darker and deep in things. Um, and it's, it's certainly empires as something of a, a touchstone for, for volume two, but I think sort of reflecting on the film and what it got right and what's interesting about it, I've sort of, uh, I think I, it, it's stock is rising with me. So I did enjoy it. I, I was meaning to go out and see it again, but I, I didn't get a chance to, yeah, I probably will at some point in the uh, run just to sort of, um, you know, sort of look at it again and think about it uh, some more. Um, but yeah, I, I, I liked it. You know, it's funny. I, um, I found myself very emotionally moved by it and very much enjoying it in spite of having some very specific criticisms about it. Uh, and then this weekend mm-hmm. I ended up watching the original movie, uh, twice kind of by accident because it was on TV and I felt mm-hmm. like it is not as good as the first, but it, like, it, you know, watched back to back but it's absolutely a movie that I enjoyed and would tell other people to watch with a couple of big gaping problems aside that might actually make it something that some folks who I know wouldn't even want to see. Um, 
I mean, I'll just throw it out there to start with because to me it's such a big caveat and then there's lots of things that about it are great. But I, I, I really had a horrible time watching the choice to have the character of Mantis being, you know, the actress uh, was great, but the choice to have a character who's subservient and berated by pretty much everybody on screen be an Asian woman was mm. just really toned up. And I think you could have made the same exact jokes and they would have been even funnier had she been played by, like, I don't know, like a large, attractive white man. Like, you could have had all of the same jokes, and it would have been funnier, and there wouldn't be this, like, subservient Asian woman trope going on in the background. And it's one thing for Ego to be an Mm -hmm. asshole to her, because, oh, spoilers, guys, this is all spoilers. Don't listen to this if you haven't haven't watched the movie. We're telling you, go ahead and watch it with this big caveat for me. Now come back and listen to the podcast. Um. You know, it, it felt like, uh, you know, I mean, one thing is Ego was just being an asshole to her because Ego is a, is a, is a bad guy. But even right. characters who we like continually treat her badly in ways that, like, are not just products of their character defects but are part of the structure of the movie. And it was so unnecessary to have it be done to, like, the first Asian woman in this movie series. So, I, I mean, when it. I left the theater uh-huh. with my brother, like, my brother and I said to me immediately, he's like, I mean, that thing with Mantis was racist, right? I was like, yes, David, that thing with Mantis was racist. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That, that, no, it's true. And it's, on the one hand, um, and obviously this isn't a, a news, uh, news to anybody, but Marvel, the MCU, has, it's been their, sort of their big struggle um, to de- about how they deal with, Asian characters, uh, the the lack of Asian characters, and then how they're handled when they're there. So yeah, it's, it is pretty unfortunate that um, she is um, kind of made the butt of jokes so often, um, and not in a way that's a particularly. It, and again, and I think we we forgive a lot if characters are good at their jobs, if they are, they have a certain amount of agency. And while she does come through. Um, yeah, this is not like the Mantis that I was kind of expecting, and this isn't a character that I know very, very well. I knew of her, and I've, I've, I've you know, seen her in Marvel Universe and read her her bio, but it was a very different handling of her than I was expecting. Um, and um, I, I thought she'd be a little more formidable, and um, you know, I suppose they can't have two kick-ass women who don't uh, suffer fools, so they had to mix it up. Um, but yeah, it's it is. Um, it's unfortunate. I hope that they develop when the when the character comes back. We'll see some growth, uh, and she'll move out of that space. But uh, yeah, it's 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 an issue. It's true because it, they are. It is. I'm sure she'll be back. I'm sure she'll be part of the team, and they'll have the opportunity to treat her differently. Um, but I actually was also surprised at how like little political analysis, or not even political social analysis, I saw addressing a particular problem, like. We wouldn't be having this conversation if the character were, I think, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation if this character wasn't an Asian, played by an Asian American woman. Like, that's it to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear Brett is joining us now, too. Hello, Brett. And why don't we get the top line from you of overall, did you like the movie? Brett? I can't hear you. I know you're there. Okay, well, we'll bring back to that in a moment. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, I like cried during the movie and you know ever since Trump was elected and I began working constantly <laughs> getting me to cry is uh-huh. not super hard but I also right. think I, I did not expect to cheer up watching this movie and I definitely had feelings mm. all over the place and my feelings sort of got leaky 
you know, near the, near the end of the movie, which is at least a certain amount of an accomplishment. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And I definitely had very high expectations coming into it because I enjoyed the Guardians of the Galaxy part one a great deal. Really enjoyed yes. it. And, yeah. So No, I mean, it's interesting that yeah. the film has, the film Guardians is kind of, is, 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 you know, for a lot of people, it's at the top of their list of the MCU. Personally, I, I can't quite go that far. I think I'm 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 going to have to be on the Avengers camp as the best film of the mm. MCU. But for a lot of people, Guardians of the Galaxy is way up there. Um, and you know, I didn't really I, I mentioned this on Twitter. It really just dawned on me kind of belatedly how with Volume Two, how much the Guardians has, is a stand-in for the Fantastic Four. It kind of fulfills some of the same space, um, especially now that family is kind of coming to show such sharp focus as the, the, the main theme or, you know, the, that it's working on. And I mean, just as the fantastic four is a literal family and this is, you know, they've become one as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, again, James Gunn is to be applauded. This is the first Marvel film, not but that's written and directed by one person. It's an, and it's not Joss Whedon. So they gave him obviously a lot of trust. And uh, of course the last one, he, for all intents and purposes, wrote on his own. He really, but contractually he had well, to leave. No, um, they have, yeah. They had the co-writer, the woman who did the initial script of it, whose name has totally fallen out, yeah. fallen out of my head. Yeah. Uh, Nicole Perlman, I believe. And yeah, I think yeah. Gunn kind of intimated that pretty much nothing of her draft was there, but he, they had to leave her name and he, you know, didn't want to say more much, that much about it, but this is the first, the second, he's the first person since Joss Whedon to get that kind of space in Marvel to really be a, the sole author. So that's, and it's, it's paid off very nicely, and I hope they um, extend that to some other people as well. Can you hear uh, me? Yes, I can hear you. Brett, what was your overall you. view of the movie? Stupid technical issues. Did you like it? Uh, I actually did, generally did not like it. Um, <laughs> I thought, I you thought the film... You weren't the first either. I liked the first. I think that the first was fun. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as everyone else. Uh, my issue to our with... podcast episode. I was listening to our podcast episode that we did last time for volume one with our yeah. late friend, the film critic. I don't remember Eric what Hoffman. the hell I said. You should totally download and listen to because it's a very good episode of the show. I highly endorse it. You were like very lukewarm on volume one, my friend. Yeah. But I mean, like, I, I liked it, but it's not a, I definitely was, didn't enjoy it as everyone else as much. Um, and it seems to kind of, I have the same feelings on this one. To me, this, the second volume feels like it was, uh, they, they saw the success of the first film, sat in a room and said, Hey, what worked and what did everyone love? They listed out a couple things and then their round table said, just do that a whole bunch of times. Um, it, it, uh, it kind of repeated a lot of the same jokes. Um, the, Mantis was really problematic, um, problematic, mm-hmm. and then it sounds like what you were discussing just before I hopped on. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it just, I just wasn't, I wasn't a big fan. It, uh, it, you know, it was the type of movie where I think it just took a lot of the same stuff from the first film and repeated it. So instead of Footloose and Kevin Bacon, it's David Hasselhoff and Knight Rider. Instead of, of Drax saying something is metaphorical or some jokes about metaphor. Uh, teaser face makes jokes about a metaphor. Um, I just noticed that a lot in the film. It almost felt like it was, uh, 
referential to itself and kind of was like a kitschy throwbacker to itself, which might have been the point. But uh, I, I wasn't too impressed. Like, uh, and I feel like I'm the one person that everyone I've talked to is not impressed with it. I'm kind of baffled. You know, I, I, I definitely see what you're talking about in terms of it taking what people like and then doing it again. And because for me, I liked the first movie, taking what I liked and literally repeating it meant I liked this, but not quite as much. Um, so I think that actually is a decent diagram of, of it in that way. Actually. And, I, I, you know, and, and, and David, I really, you said about this being the Fantastic Four and how they function as a family. I, I think that's incredibly insightful. I, I'm, put me down to co-sign for that particular <laughs> analysis of the movie. I mean, the whole movie was about father was about fathers right like whether it's you know Gamora mm-hmm. and Nebula talking yeah. about their father ruining their lives and making their own relationship toxic um I I did sort of watch it and then I left asking like so wait was the point of that movie that you should embrace your less abusive dad because he's less evil than your more <laughs> abusive dad and at least your less abusive dad tried um because that, that I think that might have been the takeaway and that's very realistic about how people are when it comes to their parents, but it's not really necessarily great life advice. <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, my, my husband actually says that based on the inclusion of the last scene where uh, we have teen Groot being reprimanded by, uh, by Star-Lord saying, now I know what Yondu went through. Frank's like, maybe it wasn't, maybe it really wasn't, as bad as Chris, as, as Star Lord made it out to be, you know, like right. everybody's parent does have some jo- joke that they make that's not really funny that they just can't stop themselves from making, and that uh, we're going right. to eat you is like that joke that they could just never let go. And maybe, I mean, maybe uh, Star Lord leaving the Ravagers to start doing his own thing is just like the normal part of growing up, separating yourself from your parents, and not necessarily the product of like actual trauma that was done to him. We really don't know. And the thing is that Michael Rooker, as Yandu, is so likable. Like, we don't even really have the ability to judge that from what we've been given. They do have those flashbacks mm-hmm. showing him how to shoot, which must have been there for, like, a reason, a signal something. But it's kind of unclear how we're supposed to read them in the end of the day, other than we all cried when he died. Because, I mean, I, I certainly cried when he died. Yeah. I did. I, mean, I, um... I won't lie. <laughs> hmm <laughs> Yeah, um, it also, it's funny because this is coming on the heels of Logan, which is another, uh, you know, comic book movie that's about sort of father figures and, and, all, and all of it kind of sits under the umbrella of what Steven Spielberg's done where fathers, in, in every Spielberg film, either someone is a bad dad or they, they have one. It's, it's one or the other. Mm. I, I, I read a, wrote a blog on it quite a while ago. Um, sort of comparing his dad issues to Spike Lee's dad issues. And this definitely feels like sort of the Spielbergian, what's what happens in volume two, um, where it's just, yeah, literally everybody is either, even Rocket is sort of now in this sort of parent uh, role um, towards Groot, um, who he has to sort of protect, even though they're all sort of, sort of parenting Groot to a degree. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see that, uh, especially right now, having just elected 
someone um, to the White House uh, that a lot of people refer to as sort of this like Big Daddy kind of a lot of language about that. And like, you know, Big Daddy gets mad, but, you know, see, he, he gets he gets his way. So let's do what he let's just do what he says and everything will be fine. Um, and because I and I said on Twitter, I, I totally read volume two as sort of a about Trumpism and rejecting it in favor of uh, rejecting Trumpism, especially for those sort of the storied white working class voter, um, you know, Star Lord from Missouri, no less. Um, so rejecting mm. that kind of thing in favor of diversity, in favor of you know uh, embracing the people around the diversity around you, and that that's really what makes you stronger uh, is, is ultimately more healthy for you than holding on to some fantasy that you something you're entitled to is going to come along and you know you and, and make you into this thing that you always dreamed of. You know, it it always threatens to make his nickname, which has been a joke, Star Lord. It almost becomes literal because you know he he literally now has the, the possibility to become a star. You know, this a divine figure, and in the end, of the film is sort of saying that's not you know turn away from that. It's no good. So, yeah, I, I, I found all that interesting. I, I I'm incredibly impressed by that analysis, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I wow. literally see Trump in everything I watch now, though. So I don't know. Just, everything I watch now, I, I, to me, it's like this is about Trump. This is a, I, my wife is almost sick of hearing hearing it because I'm seeing it everywhere <laughs> now because you know uh, that this this whole thing that we're going through as a nation right now that we you know we fail to listen to the lessons of, of our cinema and literature and now we're we're paying for it. But uh, yeah, I, I, it totally just seems to me like that. That's that's where it's 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 uh, it's coming from. So. Right. You know, I, I definitely identify. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you were You're breaking, breaking up. up a little bit. Uh, sorry. Uh, I was when I walked out of it initially, like the my first thought about ego was that he was straight up the colonial person um, planting his flag throughout the world and and trying to spread his vision to foreign nations. Yeah, he's literally colonialism, like yeah. in the sense mm-hmm. that. And he, I, I love the touch of the fact that he has these literal museum exhibits he creates to display mm-hmm. this, which is very much in line with how museums have shown, like, and here's how we beat the, quote, Indians, quote. And here's the section right. about all those grateful Africans that we brought with us. Like, it was like the same sort of really effed up movie dioramas uh, displaying our <laughs> colonialist past. I mean, maybe this is a very, like, I grew up going to museums in D.C. a lot perspective, but... Um, I, to me, like I totally associate that particular kind of museum display with colonialism. So that design touch, to me, was just like really on the nose. Um, and and uh, and and but and I, I definitely focus on like ego as a metaphor. I, I love that they kept. I mean, the name of the character from the comic is Ego, the Living Planet, and you know, ego <laughs> means something specific in terms of like the, uh, you know, the Freudian term, and I think it's, it's you know, what, what happens when he's unable to regulate or control his desire is it actually becomes toxic and he becomes the only person allowed in the world. And as a result, he yeah. ends up being lonely and then has to be destroyed and is rejected by his son. Yeah. One of the things that of course, I also really sorry. Right. No, I was just going to say, things, and you know, I think mm-hmm. uh, I was just going to say real quick. And James Gunn deserves a lot of credit for for picking for zeroing in on ego as a as a um, as an antagonist because it's of course for those who were familiar with the comics, 
um, Star-Lord's dad is actually Jason, this emperor of the Spartaks. And so that's – God made it clear early on after, after volume one that, that he was going to diverge from that. So that was really a kind of a genius idea to, to, of all the people to go dig deep for this character. Um, Ego was created in 1966, so he's been around for a, quite a while. Um, but, yeah, this is not someone that is, like, uh, you know, very po- – uh, not a popular uh, character necessarily. So, yeah, it really kind of – he deserves a lot of credit for, for finding him and then putting him and using him so brilliantly um, to express all of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the last film was how present Star-Lord's mother was as a character because of the soundtrack and because of his Mm. respect for her and the opening of the film. And it was great to have her included here, too. I think that was particularly important. Um, You know, she Mm -hmm. has a specific face and voice and, uh, you know, continuing to soundtrack the movie with her taste in music is completely essential um, mm-hmm. I, one of the things I heard some folks, okay, well, first of all, people on the end, people, you need to know that this is seventies and eighties. It's not just eighties, it's seventies and eighties. I don't know why people don't know this. Are you all that young? Um, but aside <laughs> from that, I, I actually heard people complaining like, oh, if Star Wars mom, Star Wars mom was cool. She would have been listening to new wave. And I just wanted to shake them because Star Wars mom <laughs> lives in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. So she doesn't have access to a college radio station playing cutting-edge music from England. What she does have, though, is access to broad range of AM and FM radio. What she has done is chosen really good songs from within what's available to her. So she doesn't have obscurist taste or hipster taste. She has good taste in popular music. And that's better than most people have. Most people listen to any old shit. Mm-hmm. So I still think it's right. a style statement to his mom being a person with good taste. I will say that I like the soundtrack for the other movie more than this one. I mean, I'm not just because they like played one of my favorite Bowie songs of all time, but because there actually were movies <laughs> in the soundtrack that I found kind of boring. There were great punctuation points, mm-hmm. like using the chain by Fleetwood Mac was fantastic. But I spent the whole movie waiting for them to play another song by Sweet, like they did in the trailer and like they did in the last movie. And just not having a song by Sweet in this is just such a loss. But Sweet is the perfect glam space pop music, mom-friendly, because mm-hmm. they definitely had a big female following rock band to include. And um, I, 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 I uh, come a little bit closer and how that was chosen for the, for the um, Yondu, Rick and Raccoon escape sequence, really well done. But there weren't as many mm-hmm. standout song moments in this movie as in the last. Mm-hmm. Did those sequences work for you? Um, I would agree. I think that the, um, the, the song choices for volume one were pretty extraordinary. Um, for instance, um, I think when he, when, when, uh, when, um, the Bowie song comes on, when daydream comes on, yep. you know, at that moment that you're in the hands of, a, of a superior filmmaker because a mediocre filmmaker would have chosen, um, space oddity. There's just no, that would no, no bad <laughs> filmmaker would have ever, said let's use moon age danger they would have oh no no we got to use space oddity it fits so yeah and i really think i mean it's easy to sort of dismiss music choices as being sort of superficial what have you but i think music is that the that reveals the soul of a filmmaker it really does and like the songs that they pick how they use them 
Um, and, and yeah, you know that you, you were in good hands. That said, yeah, I did sort of prefer the soundtrack for the first film um, a little bit more. Um, I, I thought that some of the, the, the tracks in this one, which we were all waiting to hear, what would it be? It, it just didn't quite capture something. It just didn't quite do as much for the film, I think, as it, as it did the first time around. Um, although I will say, and again, my Twitter followers have already seen me gloat about this kind of obnoxiously. Um, I did, after the first film, I did a, a, an analogy for each of the Marvel sort of super, the super groups in Marvel. I likened them to a classic rock band. And, I, and, on, and the day after I saw Guardians, the first thing I did right is I said, at first I thought Roxy Music, but then I immediately said, no, 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 it's ELO is the band that's mm-hmm. guard, the, that represents the Guardians. And then so, so when, when uh, Mr. Blue Sky starts um, in volume two, I was sort of, you know, I had a little satisfaction because, it, yeah, he just, again, that, that, that band, that sound really fits who they are. Um, and, you know, I get totally, for some people, that, that opening with Groot dancing around the ELO, I know there's people who are just going to be out at that point. They're just like, nope, can't. This is too cute. This is too what have you. And I, I, can't, I can't fault anyone for that. Um, you huh. either, I think that scene, it's an opening, great opening because you're either you buy in and you're, or you don't. You know, it's either if you want to sort of go, come on, you know, the cute dancing tree, dance, dodging all the, uh, you know, being so cutesy with the music. But you know, it's that that's that's sort of the that's sort of the the, the series. Either either take you know you you buy in or you do not. Well, I I really felt the opening sequence was excellent because I love the trick of having the swirling action happening in the background, out of focus, just off camera, when focusing right. on the beautiful physical comedy of Groot. I, I thought it was yeah. very witty, and it sort of shows you that the movie ultimately centers the characters more than just the mm-hmm. action sequences. It sort of is a metaphor for that for me, and I thought it was very funny. It one was great, that, and also... Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that Scott Eric Kaufman, who joined us for the last movies, uh, had observed, which just knocked my socks off, and it's, I feel like it's become something that other people say now, and they might not know where it came from, is the jailbreak sequence of the last film, where... Rocket Raccoon is explaining what he needs from folks in order to be able to do the breakout, but how it's not possible without these things. And Groot literally just starts doing it behind him. That is literally a Marx Brothers sketch from Animal Crackers. And Groot is, <laughs> is Harpo, right? Because he doesn't talk. And mm-hmm. he's smart, but he can't speak. He just does things and executes them. And, um, and Rock is Chico, who's like the schemer who's talking. And I, I, you know, that dynamic definitely continues here, but it also made me think about like, okay, so then which one is Groucho and which one is Zeppo? <laughs> and I kind of think Star-Lord might have to be Zeppo just because he's the one who does the romantic scenes with the ladies and like sings a little bit of a song. I'm not sure. But, um, right. but I wanted to bring that back because I do think that that Marx Brothers humor um, is continued here, but there isn't a scene that's quite as, like, I, in some ways, I suppose the don't press this button, press that button is a little bit of a who's on first kind of thing, only without the language. It's about the physical gestures right. instead. Mm-hmm. And the don't press this button sequence is fucking hilarious. I mean, yeah. truly hilarious. Mm, that's and the, that's the really interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no, that's great about classic comedy, absolutely, in both films. Um, I think... And also, I think want to say about the opening is I really, 
I really zeroed in on how much the first film, people called it a space opera, which of course it is, but I really zeroed in on how much volume one was a Western um, and mm. how it took those sort of tro- the tropes and the sort of ticks of the Western and brought that into science fiction, which is of course not new, that's have been done before. And I don't even, I don't feel as much, uh, uh, the, I don't see it quite as much in volume two, but uh, I thought it was interesting that the musical is suddenly, I, for, for me, when the, in that opening with the with the Groot and the, as the uh, dancing and the suddenly uh, the musical the, the debt owed to the musical really became more obvious. Even though the first film also started with someone dancing uh, doing a musical number, um, and in a way, and I know this, you know, the, the people who are, don't love the Guardians films are will, will sort of disagree. But I think the secret is that they it, it takes all of these things that are sort of are, are key to sort of the movie of the pleasure of movies, comedy, music, um, you know, this sort of good guy, uh, a stranger rolls into town and it, and it just kind of puts them all together in this really satisfying sort of new superhero sci-fi um, package. And so, yeah, it's the musical, it's the comedy, it's, it's, it's a Western and it, all of those at, at once while being something new. And I mean, I think that's why it really clicks, um, clicks with people more than any other of the uh, series that, that Marvel's done. And, and of course, what Marvel's brilliance is that they make their films, they generally make the film sort of mo- uh, mimic some sort of uh, other genre or movement of film whether or, or subgenre. And for, for Guardians, I don't know if it's one, it just seems to be like it takes a few of our favorite, most cherished things. Because one of my pet theories is that the western and the musical are at the core of movie love you know you 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 don't have to love both of them but if you're a real movie fanatic you probably love one you either are a musical person or you're a western person which of course is interesting because then there's the whole gendered aspect you know the musical mm. being associated with femininity the western being the sort of associated with masculinity um although that's not you know that that there's that that's so you can shoot holes through that as, as well um, and of course, I love both equally, but um, it's definitely I think that's at the that's at the heart of what makes movies unique and and pleasure and pleasurable. And Guardians really attempts to cover both of those. What did you guys think of the Ego, the Living Planet landscape? Um, just how we moved over it and saw it. I, I heard that they hired a fractal artist uh, to do some of the initial design work on that, which makes a lot of sense for, to me. Um, I mean, one of the things I loved about the first movie was that it actually had a, an aesthetic sensibility, and I feel like a lot of the Marvel films don't mm-hmm. even seem to have one. Um, this one, I think, uh, certainly the Ego Planet had one, but um, and so did the scenes with the Sovereign Planet. Um, I guess maybe I've come to notice it less because you've experienced it before, but what, what, what did you guys think about that? I uh, I think it was I, I liked the planet a lot. Uh, I wish we kind of could see maybe more of it. Um, I mean, it looked beautiful. Like the the special effects and and kind of the what they put together was great to look at and visually really impressive. And in 3D, it, like it really popped, especially some of the uh, the bubbles that were out there. Uh, and that one scene when they're kind of flying over, and I forgot who who presses the bubble. I think maybe it was Drax. Uh, so that yeah. was really, really interesting. Uh, so visually stunning. I just don't think they used it enough. Like it was basically a set as opposed to really taking advantage of the fact that it's an extension of ego. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I probably would have liked to see something more in that department. But 
even when I say that, I have no idea what that would be. Just to interact with it more, to, like, run through the water, swing from the trees, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, he can control the planet, so, like, walking around, you think he would do cool things of, like, maybe the, the place would kind of change as he walked, or maybe, you know, rocks would form and he would be able to sit down, or something of that nature. I don't think they emphasized enough of how connected huh. he as a person was to the planet, but maybe that was part of the part, point of it, too. Because it's eventually, you know, there's that eventual twist when we see the face on the planet. And I think at that point, the click of it's one and the same. But I think at that point, they've also said it's one and the same. Yeah, it has, it has been at that point. Oh, you know, David, you have kids. Were they surprised by the, by the fact that Eagle was bad? Did they see that coming? Um, yeah, it was a surprise, I think. Um, actually, you know what I take? I retract that. I my. Well, my five-year-old, I think, frankly, it was a little too long for him, and he's not the most, like, uh, movie-attentive. So he kind of – he kind of I don't know how – he hasn't really talked about it that much. And he probably was too young for it anyway. It was a little, was a little noisy. But um, he's a big fan of the first one, which he watched here. You know, um, he's watched that endlessly. The teenager actually said that he just assumed that if Kurt Russell was in it, that he was, must have had – that he had to be a bad guy. He didn't think that Kurt mm. Russell would be in it and be just, you know um, – um, the Obi-Wan, just a helpful, just his helpful father figure. So he actually said he was not. I was, I, I, I will admit I fell for it. The, the, the sort of ruse of having the sovereign be there. It's just clearly this sort of, you know, you're clearly, it's easy to dislike them and, and, and feel so that there's something sinister about them. And so I totally fell for that. I'm just in the, even the, the video, the feature that they released on the, um, on the uh, YouTube, on YouTube, you know, really highlighted that Taserface and uh, Aisha or Aisha, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, that they were the villain. So I, I, I will admit that I did not see it coming, that Ego oh, was wow. in fact a villain. And, um, I mean, I knew he was going to be important, I just wasn't sure. And I would say, Echo, uh, that I also thought that they would do a little more uh, with the Ego, the fact that this guy can basically remake the planet in any, you know, instantaneously any way he wants to, because it's him. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I maybe thought, maybe I've watched Brazil too many times, but, you know, skyscrapers are suddenly appearing in a city and that kind of thing, but, you know, they didn't, that didn't happen, even though that's what I expected. Um, and I also, yeah, I appreciated that it had such a very specific sensibility. This is the opposite from, in my opinion, the worst was, um, example of this is Thor, the dark world. When you see, um, Svartalheim and the, the dark elves, uh, uh, the realm of the dark elves. And it's just basically black sand and that's it. There's no structures. Mm. There's no nothing. And to me, that was like one of the most biggest, uh, artistic failures or creative failures in the, in the whole uh, MCU, which I hope they they've learned from that. So at least it wasn't something that simple, where it's just this, you know one thing. And so you know, and of course the the, the psychedelic sensibility is just it's all of a piece with Guardians. You know, it's important to note that almost all these characters are created. Um, you know, in the three of them are from the late sixties. I, I I was just looking this up. I'm you know good for the sort of the four core four are from the seventies, and so. Back to music too. I mean that yeah, it, it, th- th- that's part of why I think Gun centers on. Although it's not all seventies, like he centers on the seventies because that's where these guys come from. You know, um, mm-hmm. Mantis seventy, Mantis and Drax are both seventy three. Gamora seventy five. Star Lord 
1976. You know, it's, this is that's their era. You know, and, it, and, and instead of trying to run away from that, he sort of it's it's I, I appreciate that they sort of lean into the fact that these are very 70s characters and and uh, you know and make that a feature rather than a bug. It's funny because I'm a huge Hawkwind fan, and I'm all like, oh, they need a Hawkwind song. But there's no reason that his mom, as an American, would have Hawkwind song <laughs> in her music collection. If her, exact, her exact personal equivalent in England very well might, but there is no chance right. for his mom. But I just look at those colors, and I'm like, this is the cover of a Hawkwind album. That's what this is. Mm. I also just wanted to say about Eagle of the Living Planet, like, I'm a huge fan of Kurt Russell, just in general. I think he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they chose yeah. him, I mean, I'm sure it partially had to do with the fact that he was an actor where they have tons of reference images of what they looked like as a younger person that they can play mm-hmm. off of, right? But one of yeah. the things that was fascinating is when you actually see uh, him doing those dioramas of his colonial past, and every single one of those dioramas, he's a, he's a human. He's not whatever random species yeah. he's mating with which just really shows you that mm-hmm. he's just showing Peter what Peter wants to see, because Peter doesn't want to see his dad as an 80-tentacled creature with needles for teeth. You know, Peter might have had mm-hmm. sex with one of those once, but it was only for information. It, Peter <laughs> wants to see his dad as looking human like him. So, like, the view of what we get him to see is, is what, does, what does he want Peter to look like? And then I never particularly noticed the visual similarity between Hasselhoff and um, Kurt Russell, but it is there. <laughs> like, they could, they could be right. this, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell could not, really, but Kurt Russell and Hasselhoff <laughs> could be. So it's an interesting, subtle thing, like, yeah, like, and I also look like this actor who you like. But we, the only, but then I was realized that, actually, we see the actual flashback of him with his mom. So we know that, that he does look like Kurt Russell when he is in Missouri. That is true, because we saw mm-hmm. it in the past. And that's got to be some of the best. I totally forgot that was going to be a thing. And I'm realizing this is like the Tango and Cash reunion. Right. <laughs> oh, I totally forgot about that. Uh, good call. <laughs> nice reference on that one. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Big Rings was the one that jumped out at B. Oh. At the end, I saw him. I was like, yeah. holy shit, Big Rings. Oh, Michelle Yeoh? <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm so upset that Michelle Yeoh hasn't been in the Marvel Universe before, and I just want to have yes. a movie of her being a space pirate. Because she is a goddess. Yes. And yes, Michelle Yeoh. Far too little of her. I mean, she should be huge. I mean, she the one she got. She was amazing in the James. She's the best thing in the James Bond film she was in. I mean, that woman should have had a, a bigger career than she's had. And I mean, it's not too late. But yeah, it was great to see her in there. And that was Miley Cyrus uh, voicing uh, the uh, robot that's just ahead. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the the robot. I'm <laughs> sure someone out there knows it. But that was Miley Cyrus Weird. also. So. Yeah, I don't know how much we're going to see of the, 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 the sort of Guardians 1.0, the sort of uh, the um, the older group. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what, how they figure in, if they save them. Because, of course, we're going to see the Guardians next in uh, Infinity War and whatever the sequel is called. But, and, and then Guardians, by the time we get to Volume 3, that will be over. Presumably some of our characters may not have survived the battle against Thanos. So, it's hard, you know, who knows what's going to happen by the time we get to Volume 3, but we do have that huge thing in between uh, Volume 3 and now, so we will see them sooner than we would normally. So Marley Cyrus was really mainframe. About... Mainframe, oh, very good. Yes. One of the things that I was very... I'm, well, I'm happy to have a female voice robot. Like, there aren't enough random female voices in this universe, but I was glad mm-hmm. to uh, have actual real character development between Gamora and Nebula. Like, 
Gamora has yes. nothing to do in the earlier movie whatsoever. Nebula has mm-hmm. no acting to do. In this moment, they actually had like real acting and real issues. And it's definitely something mm-hmm. the fans had called for. And uh, Gunn had said that he heard us. And then he went and did it. But the other thing he yes. called for, which he did not do, which is not entirely on him, but is certainly partially on him, is here we have all of outer space and nobody is, nobody's queer. Like, all of space, all of the world. A woman has sex with a planet, and a woman can only have sex with a male planet. Like, there's only like, women fucking planets, so there's no women and women and women and non-binary people who are, like, identified bodily non-binary. And what's really crazy is when you see the Ravagers in that pleasure world planet, they're hanging out with these yellow-skinned sex bots, which, you know, like, why not? But if, if they're going to have, like, Ravagers having sex with sex bots and they can't have an LGBTQ character because it's a kid's movie, that's insane. Yeah. Gunn's response gonna be to that was interesting. Probably. His response was fucking bullshit, but I'll let you tell it. I will continue on my thoughts on that. <laughs> well, so Gunn, Gunn basically, like, fluffed it off with the uh, one of them could be, it just hasn't been addressed yet, was kind of... To, to summarize what he said. I don't remember what the exact wording was, but that was the gist of it. But it totally came off as like a in your mind like kind of thing from yeah. what I could read. And if and, and, and if we're never actually given like that on screen, it doesn't matter. Like one of my friends definitely said that they thought you could read Gamora as asexual actually. Certainly there's no reason not to believe that. And, you know, I said to them like, Yeah, Gamora could definitely be a based on what we've seen but the movie will never let it settle that way. Like, I'm glad that the movie doesn't settle, does not center on romantic attraction and flirtation between her and Quill, because that would get old fast, frankly. But I still expect the film to eventually go in that direction, even if, you know, my friend was able to see, like, perhaps an interpretation of a character as being asexual. Um, yeah, well, well, you know, and who knows what happens when Quill sees uh, Black Widow, you know, that, that, that could, uh, it could all get complicated. Um, I did mm. hear that in some of the, in the Black uh, Panther footage, there is a bit of flirtation between the Dora Milaje um, character that we've seen um, up to now, before now, it's, um, she was in Civil War, and another, I, I believe that with her and, um, um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's char- character, perhaps. Like, so there is a, a little, which is a an echo of what they're doing right now in the comic with um, uh, in when the uh, World of Wakanda comic with between the relationship between the two renegade Dora Milaje, uh, Anika and Io. Um, so they there denied may it. Be, uh, the, the pr- no, they they denied it. They they were asked if okay. there would be a romantic relationship, and they literally denied it, even though that's actually in the text of the comic itself. But they actually were asked okay. that there would not be a romantic relationship between them. So it's the usual thing where it's like, we're going to see subtext. I mean, I didn't even see subtext in this movie, right? But, like, it's going to be the usual thing, like, where we're going to see subtext maybe in something, and then they'll act like they're doing something huge by doing it. But I or they just don't address it, and they hint at it. They said there's not going to be a, a romantic story, but it doesn't mean they're, they're right. not going to have flirting or hint at it. Yeah. We may very well have some flirting, nevertheless. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunately it seems to be a, a we're still a, we still got a ways to go with that with uh, having those kind of representations. 
Um, but, you know, I, I feel like it'll, it's, it'll come in time, but, and, but we nevertheless have to sort of keep pressure on them to, to, to let them know it's important. Yeah, and, like, not let them get away with being cutesy about it. It's just so silly right. to have a space of all places. But they could even get away with having non-gendered or gender non-specific, yeah. like aliens, you know. I mean, why are they able to have sex spots and not LGBTQ people? Like, that really goes to show where we rank in their hierarchy of what they consider to be normal <laughs> and healthy. It's fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, prostitution's so okay, but... Yeah, exactly. Right. And prostitution, by the way, prostitution is okay. But well, it is fine, yeah. Like prostitution is okay to show, but LGBT, not yeah. so much. That's exactly. more I'm getting at. Sorry. Probably yeah, should have finished totally. that sentence. And I, and I know you mean that, but oh, one thing I wanted to bring up, actually, David, is in films, it's always a struggle to get people to sit and, like, watch the credits and actually see the credits. And I really feel like, you know, in general, Marvel, by having this post credit sequence, has gained the system to make people see and actually watch the credits. And that's kind of right. radical and wonderful. Yeah. But in this particular movie, they actually had the credits themselves be a game, right? Mm-hmm. Like they had yes. different names sort of animate. So you actually physically read the credits. I don't think I've ever seen another movie that forced you to read the credits this way. And I, I love it. No, it was very innovative. Also, you know, of course, as ever, I'm sure everyone noticed uh, that Jeff Goldblum was uh, yep. as the grandmaster was in there, uh, which is, you know, un- very unusual. To sort of, they know we've seen him in the trailer, so they have him in there ahead of time. And of course, he fits because it's you know he's a cosmic character. Um, no, it was again. It's there's a playfulness that really uh, works with this um, with this whole with these two films that just stands in such contrast to a lot of what goes on in comic book films, specifically DC and um, the sort of the no the Christopher Nolan approach and what they're doing in DC I mean, post Nolan. Um, and uh, yeah, it's nice to see them sort of uh, work with that. And it's not easy to pull off. It's you know it's not like it's less risky to be. Um, playful than it is to be serious. In fact, it might actually be a bigger risk to sort of try mm. to be silly and like that. Um, so, you know, the, the fanboy mentality is that if it's edgy and dark, if it's, you know, it looks like it's underexposed and it's miserable, then that's awesome. And if, you're, if you don't like it, you suck because you're, you know, you're weak and you're lame. Um, but, you know, obviously that's a, it's kind of an adolescent way to look at it. Um, and I, I think the Guardians have, the films have definitely benefited because so few people uh, you know, take that risk to just, you know, give people sort of a, a, a fun experience and, yeah, something that is very playful and, and not about, um, you know, how awesome you are that you like something that's unpleasant. <laughs> that's a very good way to put it. <laughs> um, Maya, I have a question. Drax, are we mm-hmm. going to get Arthur Douglas or not? Are, are we going to get the Arthur Douglas reveal in Volume 3 with Drax or – is that never, are we, are they just going to stick to the story that he's from this, he's just a, a member of the, that, the, the surface story, that he's an alien and he's lost his wife. Um, any thoughts I think on they that? stick Sorry, with it. Drax, Drax is supposed to be, I, expand, I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure that you're referring to. Okay, Drax is in the comics, if you read the sort of, you know, wikis or Marvel universes, the story goes that Drax was a human. He was killed he, he did lose his wife and child in, in a Thanos-related incident, um, but his soul was put into this sort of 
alien body that, if I'm not mistaken, was sort of engineered to be something that could take Thanos out. So he mm. was not, he's actually not really, he's, an, he's not really an alien. He actually has roots in Earth. So, and of course, we got a little bit of backstory now with the, we're talking about the wife and daughter, but, you know, I could very easily see in Volume 3 or in perhaps in the Infinity Wars, him suddenly realizing that he's actually remembering being, you know, Dave Batista, who's a biker on Earth, um, and seeing, you know, woman at a bar in Texas, and that's his actual, that's his actual story. So I wonder, because, and also, if, that, if they go that way, that gives us Moondragon, um, who is a sort of, uh, not someone that's a really popular character, but it, she is an Avenger, uh, a very powerful She's telepath. She's a really popular character is... among female queer fans, though. Like, we all know her Moon Dragon. Ah, okay. She was one of the first lesbians, like, in comics, basically. Well, there Sad we are. It comes back around. Okay, so, yeah, and that's Drax's daughter. So, um, you know, the daughter that he wow. referred to, you know, to find. So, I, I mean, they got they got. I, I just don't see how they can't deal with that or address that. That's got to be coming. Like, it's just, I mean, maybe they won't, but it, it is a part of the character. Um, yeah, you know, and so, yeah, I, I, I wonder about that now that they've started to develop them just a little bit more. One thing that I want to say about Drax, though, is I really appreciate, he, 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 he was a source of comedy in this movie in the sense where he was making jokes, whereas in the last right. film, his jokes were all unintentional. So it really goes to show right. how the character development has gone for him, you know? And, mm-hmm. I, and I thought that was a cool way to show his character growth. I, I also think that, like, the scene where he talks about his father telling us the story of how he impregnated his mother was exactly the kind of example of, like, showing alien cultural approaches and how <laughs> they, they wouldn't all necessarily be the same as each other that I wish we right. saw more of. Yeah. Like, you know, humans have one way of looking at the world. The aliens have a different one, and like maybe theirs is something else to offer, different from ours. And the thing I, I, that struck I, I me like about it. the first film, the thing that struck me about Drax in the first film is that he was essentially he's the Indian. You know, he's the he in the in the volume one. He was very much the sort of the, the Indian character that you get in an old western. He's got a vendetta. He's got a certain um, simple way of speaking. He doesn't get metaphors, that whole thing, you know. He, wow. and, and those are savage, if you will. So, yeah, that was that totally. And, but in this one, I didn't see that. It didn't, it, you're right, the character has evolved. He's not really, he's making jokes now. He's not just this simple sort of, you know, I don't get the, right. But definitely I think he started off as sort of this, this Indian character that, uh, you know, next to Star-Lord swaggering cowboy. Damn, that is true. Huh. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm glad I could. And that is why we're happy out. to have you join us. <laughs> they spent a lot of time adding depth to the, to the character, not just through that, but you had him talking about his wife and his kid and how yeah. he met his wife and that, like they, right. and um, his interactions with Mantis, especially that, that the you're beautiful and all that stuff like that. It was very focused to like, all right, we need to add something more to this character than just having him make jokes and be the butt of jokes and be this killing machine. Yes. Um, one of the things that I was particularly interesting about the first movie that I don't know if there's really a parallel for it here. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Moore, who's like, like a film and TV producer, observed that the end of the first movie 
was uh, everyone has to hold hands in order to save the world. And then what do they do once they save <laughs> the world? They turn the powerful weapon over to the government for safekeeping. And that would be a very <laughs> radical message to have in, you know, in a Hollywood movie. Like, generally speaking, the messages are like, don't trust the government. You know, you are right. against the government. And this, it was sort of like, this particular government is a responsible authority and trustworthy. And actually, it's better off for them to protect this gym than to have random cowboys running around with it. And being a very gun control sort of a message, frankly, for the first movie that I, I wouldn't. Yeah, we don't really see it that much. That's nothing that really happens. I'm not really sure if the end of this movie, other than recognizing that your family is, you know, not, is the one that you're with right now. I didn't really quite see the same level of political analytical inversion to the Hollywood norm mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. But I do really right. like Brandon. I, I, David, I really do like your, um, your Trump analysis. That, right. that <laughs> is sharp as hell. And I miss the Nova Corps. Well, thank you. Things, though. Like, the Nova Corps is this, like, great collective body of yeah. people all coming together. I mean, the closest thing we have here are the Ravagers, which are really quite different because the Ravagers, every single person is different. Mm-hmm. Except yeah, I think male, it was the dark Yeah, Right, true. that's true. The, the Ravagers <laughs> do kind of represent diversity in this sort of a, a different face of diversity. But I think because they wanted this one to have a slightly darker tone and kind of like because that's what you do in the, 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 the second film always has to go darker um but yeah xandar represents this sort of old school science fiction utopia that's incredibly diverse you know that's that's what struck me in 2014 watching it like okay mm-hmm. so you got the kree who are like the kree empire you know the the the, the lead the heavy is a, is a guy who basically is a reactionary who's like, I, want, I, I represent the old ways, almost like the first thing Ronan the Accuser says. He's this inflexible, you know, representing an empire, an imperial force. And then you have Xandar, which is this, you know, utopian, science, uh, you know, there's a mixed marriage in there. Uh, uh, John C. Riley's married to someone yeah, uh, who's not his race. So you have all of that. And I guess, you know, I, I was expecting to see more of Xandar and the Nova Corps in this, but I think it really was like, they, they knew that this was about family. So you have, you know, the guardians, the ravagers, and then what the ego, what ego makes the promise he makes. And I guess having the Zan, the Nova Corps try to stop ego. Oh, and then of course the generic scary family of the sovereign, you know, who are um, the sort of a family, but then it's really kind of unnatural, overly, um, unnatural and sort of overly uh, 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 eugenicized sort of family that's a little scary. Um, so, yeah, I guess it, the Nova Corps didn't really fit in in this one. But, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure we'll get them. They'll be back. And I know there's uh, some fanboys don't like how they've been portrayed. But I, I, I miss right. Glenn Close because I, I, I always – I love the Glenn Close – uh, had a was a Nova Prime because one of my one of my beefs with Marvel in addition to the not having enough uh, diversity beyond uh, you know African Americans not enough uh, people of Asian descent or Latinos also they just need they need more women over forty in the Marvel universe I mean it's not mm-hmm. it's, I'm glad I'm really thrilled that Kate Blanchett's going to be uh, in Thor and I, I hope they keep that keep doing that because that's definitely something an area of growth that they have to deal with. So one, one thing true. kind of touch, touching off of the kind of what you were just talking about, the, the thing that stood out about the sovereign is not just you brought up the eugenics is I almost took them as like 
white pride, white nationalism. <laughs> we need to keep yes. our – but the, the twist on that too is they eventually start using the working class that is the ravagers to mm-hmm. meet their ends mm-hmm. and, and get their goal. Very much like, I don't know mm-hmm. what's going on now. Um, where they (laughs) manipulate with the promise of money and power or whatever if they do this task for them, uh, which, of course, is never going to really pay off. Um, Right on. Yeah, I mean, that kind of stood out to me as a really interesting thing. And then, you know, spoiler, with Adam Warlock being this perfect person that they're going to eventually build and, and birth kind of, you know, that I think just, hones in and definitely uh, doubles down on that, that interpretation. But we're agreed, right? That's Adam Warlock. Like, that's, that's Adam Warlock. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Adam Warlock. Yeah. They yeah. even made oh, sure yeah. to make sure that, they, that you saw the, the Infinity Stone. Uh, they left the space in the top where his head would be with, a little, with some illumination so, so you knew that there was an Infinity Stone there. Wow. Yeah, definitely Adam that. Warlock. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I figured it was just because it's a cocoon, and we know he's coming. Therefore, right. But, um, and oh, there was a cocoon in the first. There was a cocoon in the first film, and I know that all the Adam Warlock people were really excited in the collectors, um, in the collectors mm-hmm. uh, collection. I, I, and uh, I missed him too. I missed the collector. I, I, I really liked uh, Benicio in that, but um, I, but you know, I'm sure he'll be back. Um, in any case, yeah, he was there in the cocoon. There was a cocoon, and there was speculation. And I know for especially the comic book fans who are maybe a little older than me, who, who are really into cosmic Marvel, that's been a huge thing about whether Adam Warlock's going to you know appear, and we got our answer. So yeah, definitely him. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> When he shows up in the comics, it's a definite, because <laughs> that will happen. Yeah, he hasn't been in anything for a while. No, 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 yeah. not at all. No. no. I, I knew Ego was going to be a I feel like big... he's a little before my time. Ego started showing up in the comics a lot, so you knew that was kind of a, a play to what was coming for Guardians. How funny. Right. They're really showing their hand then. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did you think about the whole explanation of the song Brandy and like going into the song analysis? I, I, it's interesting because that was in certain ways autobiographical first from James Gunn. Like he listened to that song and had that, re- that revelation as a young man at one point. Um, I appreciated having somebody actually like talking and discussing music and meaning within the story, mm-hmm. but I could see how right. someone might think it was a little bit like hitting you on the head. I don't know. Someone pointed out, and I never went back, you know, I, I, it, it was pointed out after I saw it uh, for a second time, the, that basically Ego just repeats song lyrics, constantly repeats song lyrics, that he's actually got very little mm-hmm. original thought, that all he's doing is repeating what, what he hears. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, because I, you know, don't have a script in front of me and can't analyze what he's saying versus all the music, but I just thought it was a really interesting observation, if true. Hmm. I would definitely have to check out for that. Yeah. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. feel like, he, he definitely quoted some songs, but it wasn't, it didn't stick out to me as being particularly like, here's a person who speaks in references kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. 
It'd be great if he was. That definitely would be an interesting statement about perhaps he disseminated this culture or perhaps this shows that he's actually not a creator really at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, this I think is that's kind of a big thing. Go ahead. This Sorry. is a little baby. This is inside baseball, and this is getting in the weeds. But they changed ego from being an elder of the universe, like the collector and um, the grandmaster. They changed him into being a celestial, which is a, is a different mm-hmm. race. Uh, any idea thoughts about that, or is it just because I don't? I don't think you can really kill an elder. Is it that simple? Like they want, they needed something that they could kill. Oh, I thought he wasn't a celestial in this. No, he makes a comment mm-hmm. says that he's a celestial. He is a celestial. Yeah, he Well, said, he does not have a yeah, cool-looking he, Jack Kirby head, so no, I he reject that no. notion. Right, no, because I don't he know. I mean, he's, he's, he, he's not, you know, he wasn't originally, but, right, he does say to uh, uh, Gamora, I think, yeah, I'm a celestial. He's you know, kind of almost bragging a bit about it, but, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think he says it, like, right before they go into the... Uh, That's right. The Ghostbusters, God, are you a God statement. If somebody asks if you're a God, they say yes. Wow. Yes, right. and, then, and then I joked and said, but make sure to correct it and say it's a small G, not a big G. <laughs> you don't want to confuse them. That was, that was witty. That was witty. God, Kurt Russell was so good in this. So was Michael Rooker. The two of them just really were show stealers for me. And I think it was Rooker's film all the way. Like, I loved him in it. He yeah. had so much more to do here than I expected that he would. Like, he was really one of the main characters, which was not what I expected. Mm-hmm. And no complaint, the, just surprise. No, no. With, the, with Ego, my one thought is that, like, his origin has so much to do with Galactus and, uh, you know, those kind of big picture characters that they might have gone the different route so they don't have to touch upon that. Hmm. Since all that might be at Fox. <laughs> right. Yeah, I believe they said they had to do a special deal to get Ego from Fox. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was the Negasonic Cage yeah, Warhead uh, deal. Right, yeah. right, right. I just learned um, about that. Although Ego. For folks who don't yeah, know, although Ego starts in uh, Ego starts in Thor. Freedom. Oh, okay. Ego debuts in Thor, so I, he's not a Fantastic right. Four, even though he feels like it. But I guess he was up in their bundle, uh, or maybe maybe Gunn was really talking about Adam Warlock, but didn't want to give it away. Uh, maybe that's a character that uh, the Fox true. has the rights to. I don't. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Um. And, of course, everyone's still waiting for the announcement that Fantastic Four is just being relinquished. Uh, at this point, I almost hope it doesn't happen because I think the absence of Fantastic Four has been really fruitful. Not that I don't like the Fantastic Four, um, but I just think it's really been to the good that they haven't had that um, franchise to take up so much room. And it's opened up for, for the Guardians and, you know, and for other things. So, hmm. Interesting point. Um, one other thing I just wanted to chime in on because I thought it was important. <laughs> so with Michael Rooker, the whole sequence where um, Star-Lord says, 
you look at Mary Poppins and Michael Rooker is like, is he a badass? And Star-Lord says, yes. I, Star-Lord, <laughs> as he's saying this, realizes that the answer, honest to God, is yes. And I think right. that's very on theme for the movie because it's all about realizing, like, you know, if you ask, like, a teenage boy, is Mary Poppins badass? They're going to be like, no, Mary Poppins isn't cool because she's a stand-in mom figure and we don't like moms. Moms are lame. But if right. you're looking at this as an adult, you're like, well, she made cleaning fun and she took us on crazy trips and she helped us rebel in ways yet we didn't get in trouble and that's pretty badass. And she could fly. Right. And so, like, the fact that he begins it being like, haha, Mary Poppins, and then he realizes actually Mary Poppins is pretty cool is sort of the same journey of, like, realizing that your parents are okay, that he goes on himself in terms of his own relationship to his pseudo-dad. Mm-hmm. And also Mary Poppins is badass, and I hadn't thought about it, and it's just a sexist, and now I know. Now I know why. <laughs> I didn't take it so much about, it was so much about Mary Poppins as it was about Yondu. Like, that's the moment he realizes that, no, Yandu really is my David Hasselhoff. Um, and where it kind of, it, like, it comes out as a flippant joke. And then Yandu's like, oh, is he a badass? And, you know, it's that thing of, like, well, you're a badass. You're reminding me of Mary Poppins. So, therefore, yes, Mary Poppins is a badass. Like, I took it as the oh, kind of that reverse. Huh. Yeah, I can see that. Because part of it is like the way he looks at Yondu too. He, he you could see that at, that's the moment that he really has um, that like my dad is awesome look on it. Like you could just see it on his face and the way he's staring at him. So yeah, like I, I think that's the clicking point and then kind of goes into his eulogy later on. But I do think like, but the story is not. Peter Quill's grief with Yondu is not that his dad was or wasn't, it's not that Yondu was or wasn't badass. His grief was, was Yondu a nurturing parent who cared about him or not? Like, I think it's hard to deny that your pirate who takes care of you is like, I mean, they're a pirate for Christ's sake. That's pretty badass. But it's I kind of like badass like, parent, I think. person loved me. Yeah. And I, like, I kind of take the badass as like putting that all together. Like that, to me, that, judging by the way he looks at him and, and has that like adoring look. Um, like, I think that's the moment it clicks, like everything clicks for him as to what Yandu is to him. Mm-hmm. Do you think Yandu was an abusive parent guys within the world of the sci-fi <laughs> fantasy from what we know? Hmm. I kind of go with yours is like, don't we all have that, like, my parent sucks at some point moment in our life? And I just don't know how much of it, it was that. Like, it's really hard to say because, like you, you mentioned, they've got that flashback where he's shooting, showing him how to shoot. And clearly, like, it's a very loving uh, scene, even though it's, you know, five seconds. Um, it's one of those where it's kind of hard to tell is, is this. Peter remembering things as a kid and, you know, everyone's kid's kind of opinion is off as to the relationship with their parents or is he telling the truth or is it somewhere in between? Like, I, I have no idea. I really have no idea. Maybe I will bump into Michael Rooker again at San Diego Comic-Con and I'll just ask him. 
Ooh, what did he say the first time when you met him? So, fun story. Michael Rooker is really exactly like you would expect him in real life. Uh, voice, the way he acts, everything. And we were just kind of walking, or I was walking down the street, uh, the sidewalk, going to a, a hotel and grabbing a drink. And um, I kind of hear someone behind me, and I was like, oh, it voice sounds really familiar. I turn around. It's Michael Rooker's right behind me, following me as I'm weaving through the crowd. And I just, like, take a look look forward, have this look on my face, like, is that Michael Rooker? And then turn it back and stare at him. And just, all you hear from me is, holy shit. And he starts laughing and like slaps me on the back. He's like, Hey, how you doing? I'm like, uh, okay. He's like, I'm just following you. Lead the way. And I'm just like, uh, can we you know, take a picture together as we walk? He's like, yeah, let's go for it. So just really cool guy. He's exactly like you would expect. And, you know, loved it. People were like, you know, Rooker, you rule, and just yelling at him, and he's, you know, high-fiving people, and, and, like, just loved it. You can tell he's one of those actors that really loves the fans and, and was enjoying the, the time and walking and that experience. Because uh, the other thing that stood out to me is, like, most of the other celebrities have cars and security and all that stuff, and it was, like, him, and there might have been, like, an assistant with him. And other than that, like, the security literally was me, all five foot six of me, weaving through the crowd and I had no idea I was doing that until probably halfway through the walk. Oh, that's so, funny. I, I love Michael Rooker for that reason alone. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any sequences from the movie that you would like show to one of your film classes to be like, like, let's break this down and see how it's done. This is a good model of X, Y, and Z. In the second film, um, Hmm. I think, well, certainly the opening credits. Um, it's great in terms of the way it uses space. It's great in that, you know, you have to, you know, you have to, the, the they have to sort of respect the space and you have to know where you are at all times and the use of foreground and background. I mean, that's very skilled filmmaking. Um, so definitely that was a standout moment. Um, I think that, uh, the prison break, which is in this film, um, it it stood out to me and that maybe, uh, I, I, I was a little bit, and I'm sure it was because I had my five-year-old, but you know, it's PG 13. No one told me, uh, it was a, a a PG film, but you know, a scene like that, of that kind of mass murder, um, (laughs) done with a, you know, a peppy pop song. Um, and as I, I tweeted and said on Facebook, you know, the next day I see the lovers with Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts, and that's rated R because they, you know, use the F word a few times and Deborah Winger has an orgasm, but, you know, an arrow going hmm. through and killing about, you know, 35, 40, 50 people, uh, PG with a nice pop song is PG 13. Um, it's a well done scene though. And I mean, I certainly would show that because I think it's a lot, there's a lot to sort of talk about there about how, you know, with the right song and done the right way, the scene, which is then when you think about it, kind of horrific and could be really disturbing is actually done in a way that doesn't feel that way, but it maybe still is kind of disturbing. Um, and again, the the first film didn't quite, it, the first film actually shied away from that kind of thing. You know, famously uh, Ronan says, you know, cleanse it on the kiln and we don't see them then liquidate everybody on the kiln who's a survivor and kill them. But, you know, he's a bad guy. And, and I guess it would be, it would be as uh, fun to show that. 
Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting thing for in terms of our, our how we deal with how we for how we're comfortable with violence and uh, and and then how the way you direct a scene really kind of uh, changes everything. Mm-hmm. The, the thing, wow! With that scene, I think what's interesting to me is how they broke it up with humor. Like it went from right. tons of stabbing and killing, and then they have the scene with Baby Groot, who then goes all crazy and attacks his abuser, uh, which is yet more murder. Um, yet it's done in a way that's like you sit there and you're like oh that's really funny and cute and and you actually forget they just literally killed 50 people and baby group tossed a dude (laughs) off like a a a walkway like people were rooting for that and cheering and smiling and laughing and I'm like yeah you just basically had an infant murder someone (laughs) like this is slightly twisted but he poured a beer on him so he had it coming (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, it was so hard to watch Baby Groot getting bullied and abused It's like fucking yeah. hard yes it, yes, it was Yes As it should be, but right? I, 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 the, the, the funny is that scene was like really hard to watch But the thing I liked about it is they actually showed The repercussions of the bullying Bullying that you don't necessarily see all the time. Like he's broken and dejected and like that walk afterwards where you like, you just feel it. And, you know, well, you all think of, I, I know I was bullied and picked on as a kid. So like, I could totally relate to that. And I don't think you don't, you see that often in films where you see that, mm-hmm. you know, follow up of the, Hey, this, this person was bullied and we get to see them feel shitty and like down afterwards in a semi realistic way. Hmm. That's interesting. I can imagine mm-hmm. that that's overlooked a lot because it's not fun. No. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like, it's not not fun. So like, why would you show it? But they showed it for a while right. too, because he's like walking by and they call him over. So it's not like a short scene. It's you know probably whatever fifteen seconds mm, of him walking, great. which is I just feels yeah. like a lot. You know, I'm kind of sad that it's a, we're already having teenage Groot like. I, I'm glad he was growing, but I thought we'd have, like, right. child Groot. Like, this was definitely toddler Groot. I thought we'd get, we right. thought we'd get like, to eight-year-old Groot, you know? But I guess I guess this goes right. to the teen years. Yeah, I mean, and also let's remember the next time we see the Guardians, it, it will be four years from the end of Volume 2. Because mm. Volume 2 is actually, we're going back in time for Volume 2, because Volume 2 would be taking place around the time of Age of Ultron, maybe a little bit It's before. 2014. Right. So, yeah, it's it's not even, probably not even Age of Ultron. It's like two months, right? So it's probably, it was like the end of 2014 when Guardians Volume 2 was taking place. So next time we see Groot, right, he'll be at least a teenager, if not, you know, uh, if not older. Um, oh, and I also wanted to, wanted to say, uh, wanted to point out or mention the Rockets big scene too, um, where he got to take out um, the Ravagers. Uh, I thought that was really impressive, and uh, you know, Rockets probably. I, I, I like Rocket a lot. I, I'm not sure that I have a favorite Guardian. It's a it's a toss up between Gamora and I guess and, and Rocket, but um, it was nice to see uh, them really show. That because in the first film, you know, they put they stick Rocket in a ship for the big third act for the big battle, 
And I guess I, I have a feeling they felt like they needed to show that Rocket was was formidable as a uh, combatant, just to you know hand to hand, not just in the ship, because of course he's a he's a what three three foot raccoon. But um, you know it was nice to see him uh, get to kind of cut loose and get his kind of Wolverine scene. Hmm. Yeah, it was very that was interestingly staged. I liked how he fought them. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I would say with the with the time frame that you're going, that that's something that really I thought was really interesting is they actually definitively say what time it is, because there is uh, when the the opening scene starts with uh, in the flashback, it, they say it's 1980, and then right. when that ends, they say 34 years later. So now we we have a definitive time that it's it's 2014 in Guardians of the Galaxy two which I thought was really, right. really interesting in that I don't, don't think they've put a time on like any other film. Nothing really stood out that I can think of where they've done that and been like, it is this date and, you know, this year. And I always thought they kind of did that to make it timeless in a weird way. But, you know, they've got a stamp on here, which I thought was really fascinating because that's, I think it's the first time they've done that. There was a, they did something similar in volume one because it starts, it says Earth 1988, and then it tells you how many years oh, they were, like, later. I, forgot I think about that. it does say, like, yeah. So, um, yeah, so they, so the, but they only really do that with Guardians. I don't think any other of the MCU films have really sort of been that specific about, you know, when, uh, the wins and wares, maybe a couple of flashbacks. I know the one in Civil War, the sort of, uh, very, um, important flashback they they do register as 1991 but uh yeah they they can sometimes be and really i think the big missed opportunity time-wise was dr strange a film where the whole theme is about time i really didn't understand why they didn't you know show us events in the mcu happening in the background as he dr strange is learning his craft when which presumably Uh... presumably should should take some time for him to become the Sorcerer Supreme. And there's sort of a suggestion that it's a long period of time, but I thought they really missed an opportunity to to show us, oh, yeah, and while he's doing this, this is when, uh, you know, um, uh, um, there was a big Iron Man suit battle with the president involved. Like, it could have – they missed that opportunity, but and for Guardians, I think it's really important because you're in another, you're off of Earth, and you really need to know the time. Otherwise, yeah, you're completely. They need you to know that it's now because I think we might otherwise have the Star Wars reflex of assuming that this is happening somewhere that sometime else, and there's really not much connection between the two films um, so far aside from Thanos. So they, it's important that we know that this is happening in our time, just far away. Well, speaking of, I think you're right. Speaking of time, though, like, you know, so Peter gets a Zune, right? And I think it's cute because it's just so period-specific piece of technology. But um, I really hope that they continue to situate the music in the same time period because that's such an important part of the aesthetic. And there's no reason why mm-hmm. somebody's Zune wouldn't have more songs by Sweet on it, let's be honest. But I, I mean, also <laughs> a metaphor for his world expanding. Like, he has the ability to listen to right. more than just his own mom's Music now, right? You know, I wanted to make in. sure you had a chance to talk about your, um, uh, uh, David, your list of um, which band each one of the Marvel teams from the movies is. Right. Um, so yeah, like I said, the day after the first one, I, I just sort of just started doing this sort of analogy. 
for for bands for the the big Marvel groups, and so I think it started with the Fantastic Four. I kind of thought that they would be like the Beatles because they're the first family. They have this sort of the the group has this sort of special status where they you know the, the Fantastic Four is is never outlaws. They're sort of looked up to. They got a building in the middle of New York City um, and all that, and and yet there's this sort of psychedelic aspect to them because they go off in space and negative zones, you know, negative and, and things like that. So yeah, I thought that fit the Stones for the X Men, which I know some people have thought maybe uh, 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 other bands, but to me the Stones being the sort of opposite, the outlaw on uh, opposite number, even though that's all kind of that's not really as quite as as, as um i don't think i don't know they are it, it may be just a way we it's more dichotomy right yeah so um you know a dichotomy we create we put on them rather than one that's organic but in any case yeah so the the x-men are kind of like the stones um and then the um the uh who are the avengers are led zeppelin and of course, I was I felt vindicated when uh, the Thor Ragnarok trailer dropped with um, Led Zeppelin because of the, you know the, the the red Led Zeppelin in the sense that yeah these like heavy hitter heavy lifters in the Avengers who uh, have this you know Thor bringing this sort of mythology that Led Zeppelin liked to sort of traffic in uh, so that that fit when I think of them and really it's the first team I don't know that the subsequent Avengers teams Led Zeppelin is probably not as, as appropriate but that first team with Thor. And the Hulk, it definitely felt like Led Zeppelin was the right choice. Mm-hmm. Then I said Defenders, I, I likened them to the Doors. And, of course, I have to now be to a caveat. This is the sort of comic book Defenders in which Doctor Strange is always the, sort of the center of it. Without Doctor Strange, the, the, the Defenders that we're about to get on, on Netflix, I think, is, seems a lot more like the Ramones, just because they are the sort of let's get back to basics, let's you know strip down street fighting heroes uh, taking us back to the – yeah, there and very New York, exactly. And then for the Guardians again, at first I think I thought about Roxy music, uh, you know, because glam rock seems very in, uh, fitting. But then I, then I just realized ELO was definitely the one, the one, um, and 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 there they are in, in the opening of uh, of Volume Two. So uh, yeah, so that was those, that was my little uh, that, that was my little analogy for, and I tried to keep it roughly in the same time period. So. Yeah, th- those are our groups. Well, you know, somebody in your thread asked you about what the DC teams would be as bands, and you said, you right. know, like, you're not a really big DC person, so I volunteered myself. And I'm actually not completely ready to present my list to the to the class, as okay. it were, but I did want All to right. throw out a couple of things. I So I determined that Birds of Prey is definitely Bikini Kill, because people can't <laughs> believe that it took that long for them to happen. And they were completely female-driven. It wasn't, this isn't like, there's no Spangali like there was with the Runaways. Like, Bikini Kill right. is Bikini Kill. They invented themselves. They're all women, and they're badass. Um, I said that uh, the Teen Titans are the kinks, because if you don't know any better, you'd think they were good boys, but they're really actually having fist fights <laughs> while wearing their formal suits on stage, and everyone has got a massive chip on their shoulder, and the music is way smarter than anybody thinks it is, unless they're familiar with their oeuvre. Um, I decided Excellent. that Doom Patrol is thro- thank you. Doom Patrol is throbbing gristle, um, slash psychic TV, both stages of it. In which case, you guys are like, who? Most people are like, who's having gristle and who's psychic TV? You're like these are like throbbing gristle invented industrial music. Psychic TV was like a very early industrial band, super obscure. 
like have members who are trans, much as Doom Patrol had one of the first trans writers, um, and are just like completely avant-garde, even in their earliest formation. Like Doom, Doom Patrol in the '60s was still already avant-garde. Um, I think blue and the, the blue and the gold, aka Booster Beetle, Bo- Bo- Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, are hollow notes. I'm very confident in that. <laughs> They don't get any respect, <laughs> but they're actually good. Um, and I have to leave you with, because I'm still working on some of these bigger teams, Lobo himself is Kiss. Just Lobo. But he's only in it for the money, and he has all the makeup. Uh, everybody thinks he's really cool, especially if they're a 14-year-old boy. Or me. I happen to be right. a big fan of Kiss, although I'm not a big fan of Lobo, to be honest. But I just could imagine all of that. If they were from space, they would be, collectively, they would be Lobo. Uh, that, that's does Lobo does Lobo put his face on like every tchotchke known to man wouldn't he like he became faithful I, I think he would, I would, he would, did. He, he would yeah, if he could true. I think I, he'd be very happy with that yeah I, I, I do know Lobo I, I, my DC knowledge is way is, is far uh, n- not, not nearly as robust as my Marvel my mastery Marvel but I would say De- Lobo would definitely put his face everywhere and sell it if he could. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm still, I'm still working on polishing that, but I have lots of, I have lots of thoughts. I, uh, I think that JSA is Shanana because they're like going back to like, to be retro <laughs> even before being retro was known as being retro. Like there wasn't even a term for like what they were doing, but it was already retro at that time. Um, right. <laughs> so anyway, stay tuned, guys. I, I'm, I'm, I will be revealing which exact 80s hair metal band Suicide Squad and Secret Six will be. So we'll be Because uh... <laughs> I'm kind of going back and forth about which – I'm going back and forth between whether Suicide Squad is Guns N' Roses and Secret Six is Motley Crue or mm, – I would right? flip I mean, it. Because, like, Motley Crue is particularly incestuous, as is Secret Six. Um, and they both, they both both games. Like they're bad for you and they're so good. They're bad for you and they're so good. <laughs> like you're probably less healthy for having played it, but you feel very vindicated. Um, see, I would go see Su- Suicide Squad being Crew and then Secret Six being GNR. Because. So Secret Six feels a little bit more badass in what they do and a little bit more rock and roll in their attitude. Um, where Suicide Squad, uh, I'm just trying to think of like the best way to describe it. it. It's kind of cheesy when you think about it, I guess in a way, but you love it anyways. Mm. I think like, to me, like one of the definitive, like specific things about Guns N' Roses is that they released one of the few like literal perfect albums being Appetite for Destruction. And like, True. How do you reflect that? Like, in spite of everything, in spite of being a complete shit show and fighting. I mean, like, right, like both of these are bands that <laughs> beat each other up, and there's just drugs and people dying, and there's, like, casual, like, people who they know vaguely die through manslaughter. It's like, these are those bands. <laughs> but, um, but that the, you know, I, I, I always commented that Motley Crue actually has way more, way more good songs than people think they did. Uh, and mm-hmm. has more good albums collectively than Guns N' Roses did, but Guns N' Roses did have the one of the few like literal perfect albums. So that kind of confused which one I assigned to which band. 
Uh, well, and by that logic, the then movies, right? Because I think like the Suicide Squad movie, which I didn't see, would probably be like some shitty new metal bands that I wouldn't true. listen to, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's a good question. I, I jokingly you I think Blink One Eighty Two. No, I know. I, like say, my 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 gut response is Blink One Eighty Two. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was gonna say something like new, like yeah, exactly. Uh, something uh, Suicide Squad, which I did see recently, uh, and it is absolutely terrible. Um, Blink One Eighty Two. Um, yeah, I might. I might. What is I, I might even go to Nickelback. Front. I might. I might even say Nickelback <laughs> and just throw down the gauntlet, which I know that's the ultimate put down. But and it doesn't reflect maybe the swagger they think they they have, but. That may be that's that's how much I hated uh, Suicide Squad, but so uh, if, you, if, <laughs> if you go Nickelback, if you go Nickelback, that I'll say then that's the thing that everyone says they hate, but secretly they actually like some of it. Nobody likes Nickelback. I don't know. the second film that 
not all Marvel films. I mean, there have been sequels that have done well, but I mean, this is uh, Winter Soldier, of course, is the, 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 a great example of that. But I so think good. this is the first. Uh, this is the time when the you know this is the second only the second time I suppose when a second film is really delivered and not uh, disappointed. I think if you don't if you if you if you didn't love the first one, then yeah, it makes perfect sense that you're not going to love Guardians. And there is an, an aspect of it's it's like the first one, but more. But I think when the, as I was saying, when the book of Marvel's written, it's gonna James Gunn's definitely going to get his own sort of special section because um, he's been able to do something uh, and really bring an authorship to this uh, this series that uh, is sorely lacking. I think in a lot of Marvel's biggest missteps is when they put in someone, either someone didn't sort of had lost faith, like with Favreau and Iron Man two, where he clearly kind of. You know, lost his way with the material having all these Avengers people come in after he established this kind of very specific a realistic world or you know Alan Taylor who is not an untalented director but obviously just had no real connection to Thor um, so mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting uh, uh, little thing to watch and I'm very curious to see where how how this ends it probably will be Gunn's last his farewell although now I, I've read that he's essentially being given sort of um, advisory status now for the entire, for the, for all their plans for cosmic Marvel, which I presume includes Captain Marvel. So his, his role will transition after the third one, but it's uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting uh, thing to watch and very enjoyable. And uh, again, you find me on geniusbastard.com. I have a blog uh, that's there that I, I have not, uh, I, I, I am fitfully uh, prolific with, uh, it depends on what time of the school year I'm in. If <laughs> so, I haven't posted anything uh, too, too too recently, but I did earlier in the year. I, I posted a few things, and of course, you can find me at Twitter at, at geniusbastard dot com, where you. I mean, excuse me, at geniusbastard is on on Twitter. So, uh, and thank you very much for having me. Absolutely, thank you for joining us. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. So, Rich, we want to tell people what's going to be happening in our 200th episode. Are we allowed to say that yet? Uh, I think we should hold off, but uh, just till okay. we get everything completely 100% confirmed, but it's pretty big. I'm going to go with that. So we it's can at least tell big. folks that, yeah, we have a big 200. We've been doing this. It's going to be our 200th episode next week, and we have some amazing guests planned for you. I will say it's a prime edis- episode that's going to be the catalyst for so much more to come. Let's go with that. Ooh. Ooh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> It'll be a whole new universe of exciting episodes from us moving forward. Yes, absolutely. So we're, we're going to forge a new new uh, uh, buzz. Sure, we'll go with that. Hint, hint, hint. But yeah, uh, that's going to be a special day in time, Tuesday at 7 p.m. Uh, we have got Two confirmed guests. It's going to be awesome. I, I know I'm excited. A lot is excited. It's going to be sweet. Uh, so as soon as I can, it's going to be up on Blog Talk Radio and, of course, Graphic Policy to help promote everything. So uh, uh, watch. It's going to be pretty damn awesome. It's going to be a great episode. Let's go with that. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you came in late, like I did, uh, you can go and listen to the episode on iTunes and Stitcher. Um uh, probably like an hour or two. It's going to be up on SoundCloud tomorrow. It'll be posted on our site. 
graphic policy tomorrow so you can listen to it on demand, share it with your friends, catch it again, um, a whole bunch of options for you. So, uh, you know, hooking you up. So come back to the site tomorrow and you can catch all that. And Alana, tell folks where they can catch you. On Twitter all the time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Far too much. <laughs> and I'm actually, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you can go, go ahead. Sorry for cutting you off. I was going to say also just a preview that like we're going to be uh, doing another pop politics tweet chat coming up on May 24th for fans of Steven Universe or people who realize that they need to be. We'll be talking about that show uh, nine o'clock at night. Nice. That'll be uh, uh, that'll be a uh, very cool thing to to take part in. And the first one went over huge, so uh, definitely keep your eye out, and uh, that'll be a fun thing. And for those who want to check out more of the site, you can catch us at graphicpolicy.com or on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Tumblr, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. So as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.